Hello and welcome to Step Into Light. I'm Laura Barton. And I'm Michelle Jones. And today we are covering 1 Nephi chapters 11 through 15 in our Come Follow Me manual. Last week we covered Lehi's dream and the title of that lesson is Come Partake of the Fruit. This week's lesson is titled Armed with Righteousness and with the Power of God suggesting that Nephi's vision manifest ways the blessings of the atonement can protect us and strengthen us along the path. In Lehi's dream, um, his dream is allegorical. Nephi expands on this allegory, focusing on the gospel of Jesus Christ and (coughs) the collective salvation of the house of Israel. Ultimately, we see that those that choose the covenant path will be grateful grafted into the tree, coming to the knowledge of the true Messiah as our Lord, Redeemer, and Savior of the world. And we start off our reading with a really great example of how to seek truth from God, which I feel in the end will be a really dramatic contrast to how we see Laman and Lemuel react to this dream. And so I wanted to start off looking at how Nephi reacts to Lehi's dream. So we're right here at the beginning, chapter 11, (laughs) verse 1. Yes. So I love this. Um, He says, For it came to pass, after I had desired to know the things my father had seen. So we see the first step. He wanted to know. He wanted to understand. And I love that. And believing that the Lord was able to make them known unto me, I sat pondering in my heart. And I thought, this is is hope and faith presented to us very directly. He's presented this pattern for us. Absolutely. And we've talked about it before. We've seen what faith and asking with real intent can do. I also like that he said, as I sat pondering in my heart. And I want to point out not to underestimate the power of pondering. Yes. I mean, we've got (laughs) these three key things. Desire. I think that that is something that we can't underestimate either. And like this middle one, I really love believing that the Lord is able to do it. Like I want to know, and I believe that the Lord can tell me what that is. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is very powerful. And we will see that as Nephi is shown the gospel of Jesus Christ by the spirit of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord comes to him and he asks, what desire thou?" He does not say, hey, Nephi, I'm about to endow on you a bunch of knowledge because you're sitting here pondering. He really says, what do you desire? And Nephi states what he desires. There's a lot of power in not just the desire, but being able to articulate it and being specific. We see right here an example of, of what that can do. And and before <laughs> we get into the details, I thought that that was such an important thing that we can each ponder for ourselves. Like We need to know what we want. We need to know what we want from the Lord. If we would like to receive blessings, if we would like to have further understanding into the mysteries of God, we need to know what we desire. And I thought, okay, the angel comes to him. He asks him this question and Nephi has an answer for him. I wonder what my answer would be if an angel came and said, what desirest thou? Right. And you want to go, well, I'd like to know all the mysteries of God. And that is not what he said. He said specifically, I want to know what my father saw on the tree. And then there's a series of questions deter- that actually is similar to maybe something you would see in a temple interview. What 
what do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, I believe the Father. I believe my Father's words. I believe the prophet. And so consequently, the angel was so happy that he had he actually stated this faith. He exercised this faith and he articulated it. And that's very different than just passively saying, yeah, please let me know what's going on, which in contrast, I think we see at the end with Lamech and Lemuel again. Because it's not just saying, tell me whatever God wants me to know. There's an, there's an element of agency involved in this revelation, in this vision, because there are specific things that Nephi would like to know. I also love, and I circled every time the word look comes up where the spirit or later the angel directs Nephi and and it often there's often many questions that come so he is shown and it's I feel like this was a pattern another part of the pattern for divine tutoring which I would label maybe as observe and ask well when we're saying um hear the word of the Lord read the word of the Lord look is another sense that actually engages you and so when we saw in the book of Revelation, I heard something and then I actually looked or I saw something engages another sense and it awakens oneself to even greater glorious truth. So we see this building that your faith can give you answers on different levels. You may receive personal revelation as you read the scriptures as the Holy Ghost confirms it to you. But there are many different ways you can know truth and as you use um, that communication with the spirit, it can become more and more specific and more articulated to you. I really appreciated the beginning of this dream or this vision where we are shown, he's asked, what desirest thou? He states, I want to know about the tree. And the answer is that he saw this tree and the beauty thereof was far beyond, yea, exceeding of all beauty. The whiteness thereof did exceed the whiteness of the driven snow. And so as he actually gets and asks for the interpretation of this tree, the angel very specifically answers him. And I've seen this many times as I've read the um, vision of the tree of life. And I've thought, <coughs> there, for me, this is very significant. And it's a very um, short part of our reading but I feel, for me, I, I glean a lot from his answer. It says that when he looked, that he saw the great city of Jerusalem. And in the city of Nazareth, I beheld a virgin, and she was exceedingly fair and white. So when he's asked what is the interpretation of the dream, he is shown a, a tree whose whiteness exceeds the whiteness of the driven snow. And then he is shown a virgin who was exceedingly fair and white. For me, um, I find that significant that that was his answer and that it's unmistakable to me that the virgin is being compared to the tree of life. That as a mother of the Savior, her role was divine and that Heavenly Father partnered with the Virgin Mary and she was the mother of the Son of God. And for me, it shows the divine nature of women. Mm. It shows the divine nature of mothers. That <laughs> the love of God is that love, that incredible love that you understand as a mother, 
that you physically feel, that you emotionally feel, that you spiritually feel. And that when he says, what is the condescension of God? Heavenly Father, we then see the condescension of Jesus Christ, which is the condescension of God. But to think of Heavenly Father literally partnering with Mary to raise his son is also another level of condescension. And so I think that Mary as the actual answer and being compared as exceedingly fair and white is more significant than we take time to really give it usually. And it's interesting, as you were sharing that, I was picturing again some of the different (coughs) visuals or even videos that we've seen of people as they partake of that fruit and the joy that it gives them and the strength that it gives them. There is a power in that fruit as they partake of it. And as you connect that with um, with Mary as a mother, I think there is, we have a lot of power and down to us as mothers, whether we all step into that power or not, I think is yet to be is individual. But I think that one of the things that we underestimate is that the, the divine power that we have as mothers to bring love to bring protection to bring joy to our children absolutely and i think that even though we don't get a lot of commentary on this i think that if you take the time to reflect on the context of this dream that stating that the love that god has for his children is what immediately follows this that nephi understood that with the concept of a mother and a child and that she bore a child And that that role as a mother is where you can feel the incredible significance of what true love and being in the presence of God is as opposed to separation and feeling lonely and not feeling that love that, and, and even there's other things in in the Hebrew language that connect Mary with the word love. So I find it very significant whenever I read this, that that Nephi, once he sees that, then understands that that the tree of life is the love of God, which shed itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men. Wherefore, it is the most desirable above all things and most joyous to the soul, because that's immediately what happens after that. And then you go on to hear about the condescension of Jesus Christ. And I, um, another thing I thought to bring into the conversation here is the, <coughs> is the security that comes with this love, both from our Father in Heaven and our Savior, but also with this mother love that we are talking about, when that mother love is being exercised in its fullness, it brings a sense of safety and security to our children. Likewise, you know, it's a very similar pattern that we see as we are able to step into and connect ourselves with so that we can feel that divine love that I think that safety and security that we yearn for is there within that love. Absolutely. And so then we go on from that love that a parent can bring you, the pattern that's established there. And then we see Christ being raised from a child as a baby and showing us through his example, also his gospel. It's always interesting to me that we have John the Baptist talked about before, um, we see Christ's ministry because Lehi also did that. And so we are told that he then beholds the rod of iron, which we know is the um, 
word of God, but it's also the law of obedience, and it shows Jesus Christ being baptized. It shows us the lower law precedes the higher law, and we look at Jesus Christ, and we know that he's perfect, and yet he recognizes the law of obedience, which is the preparatory um, law to the higher law, which he then goes on to show us as his sacrifice as he's raised upon the cross and lifted upon the cross for the sins of the world. And so we see the the actual gospel of Jesus Christ, his coming and condescending before man, being um, ministering to everyone, but also showing the law of obedience and the importance of the lower law and then his actual sacrifice upon the cross. Yes, and as we look at this baptism and we think, I think it's often really easy for us to just quickly say that baptism is to cleanse us from sin, but it really is so much more than that. A baptism is an opportunity to mm, show commitment in many ways to where we want to focus our life, where we want our desire to be. I mean, in some ways, like this is just off the top of my head, so I'm. this is in no way am I trying to say that this is a doctrine, but that as, as when we are married, we choose one another and we're committed to that. I think <laughs> when we are baptized, it's an opportunity to choose the Savior and to be committed to Him. And so the Savior showing us that that's where we begin. Before our ministry, before anything else, we have to choose. And He clearly demonstrated despite his, I mean, unlimited ability to pretty much do whatever he wanted while he was on earth, he demonstrated right at the start that he was committed to following the plan that his father had for him. Well, and as we see this unfold again, we are looking at the unfolding of Lehi's dream as an allegory and looking at the covenant path, which is the path And the rod of iron is where we see this. And if you want to talk about literally the covenants that take us back into the presence of God, it starts with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and baptism. Mm -hmm. So literally saying, yes, this is a choice I make to be identified as a follower of Jesus Christ. That is my identity. That is the first step on the path and the covenant path back to our Heavenly Father. And so then he shows us the law of sacrifice, and it is contrasted with... There are people in the large and spacious building that persecute him. Behold, even the house of Israel gathers together to fight against the 12 apostles of the Lamb. They lose this doctrine of Christ. They are in the large and spacious building. And again, we go back to what is the large and spacious building? It's the pride of the world. He doesn't make it more complicated than that. He tells us pride because we know that pride separates us from other people. We know that pride is hostility and competition with God, not agency for being selfless and being partnered with Christ, because we know Christ is the greatest example of sacrifice. It's agency for personal gain that is used with a large and spacious building, and that is first and foremost what separates us from God. And we've been warned about pride by all our leaders. Right. And uh, it reminds me how we started the conversation last week about the great and spacious building being a refuge, a place that people go because they feel like it gives them a measure of protection from things that could happen here in mortality. And I think... I don't think it's a coincidence that that love that we feel from God that brings us that ultimate safety and security is contrasted with this illusion of security that people are looking for. Because I think, I mean, there's going to be such a variety of people. Some people are seeking out to um, 
place themselves above others and to have all these different things. But I think other people are just, they just don't know if they can trust in what they can't see in the Savior. And so they lean into the things of the world that they think will be their safety net, their security, should the worst things happen, which occasionally they do. Well, and that's why it goes back to the covenant path. Again, this is a very simple model. In the beginning, Adam and Eve were um, in the presence of God with the tree of eternal life, and they were ca- they left and they were in the wilderness. We are now in the wilderness, and we have the covenant back- path back to the tree of life. This sense of the spacious building that's floating with no foundation is a complete contrast to the rooted, actual Mm, rooted nature of the tree. And if you talk specifically about that covenant path, that those roots are in what we just stated, baptism. What are you rooted in? You are rooted in Jesus Christ. You are identified as a follower and a, a covenant keeper through Christ. And so... When we talk about where our roots are, that's very significant to talk about how literal these literal these covenants are that take us back to the tree of life. And and really to consider how aligned are we to the tree if we are not sinking roots in to really have that be an integral part of our our desires, our focus is aligning ourselves with Jesus Christ. And how important it is that we are rooted because the he now here goes into the uh, look at the collective salvation and how branches are grafted in into the house of Israel and how the mists of darkness and the reality of Satan is very real. And if you are not rooted in those covenants, it is very easy to become... Um, distracted by these mists. And so when we look at how the um, branches of the root of Israel develop this collective salvation and how we all get to participate in this, he starts by looking at his posterity, the Nephites and the Lamanites, and he shows us what happens here, and he shows us about the mist of darkness and the confusion that's created and the wars and how the multitudes, concourses of people on that path, right? We remember in Lehi's dream that there were concourses of people, and yet that mist of darkness caused great confusion with wars and generations pass away, and they're wandering on the broad way. And then we see third Nephi, when Christ comes, he actually restores the truthfulness of his gospel. He um, gives them the gospel in the fullness in the sense that it's the gospel of Christ and the apostles have it. And then we get to see what the beautiful results of what staying on that path do. There are four generations that pass away in righteousness. Many remain on the path and partake of the fruit and continue partaking of the fruit because truth is restored, because the church is set up to help them understand the covenants. And this is the result of it, that they stay on the path. But the literalness of the of the mist of darkness show that there are filthy waters that will uproot us and take us on broad paths if we, if we heed them. And we are counseled again to heed them not. And I liked what he said in verse 19. Did you want to talk about something before verse 19? I do 19? want to talk about okay. something before verse 19. So when, when we're talking about this time after the Savior comes, now all of this... Nephi is, you know, seeing 600 years in the future, things that are going to unfold. And he sees 
the Savior come. And I, I love how we get some imagery in here back from the book of Revelation, back from the New Testament where we just were a month ago. And he says in verse 10, um, because of their faith in the Lamb of God, their garments are made white in his blood. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it says again in verse 11, um, these are made white in the blood of the Lamb because of their faith in him. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that they had these generations of peace they had this time of great unity, of great wholeness as a as a people, and that they were so intimately connected with the atonement of Jesus Christ, that they were actively utilizing the atonement to become purified, to take their mortal weakness, and to have the Savior transform it into a whiteness and into something that is pure. And I just look at that and think that is a model that is here for us to say, if we are seeking for this peace within ourselves, that we want to experience sort of this um, third, third, fourth Nephi-ish experience of that beautiful time of peace, that that comes with being fully immersed in the Savior and in the atonement of Jesus Christ and continually taking our weaknesses and those things to him so that we can be made white in the blood of the Lamb. So I kind of found that connection that I think there's a lot of us who look at this time and think, well, I'd like to have been drawn for that time of peace sort of situation. And the beauty is that the Lord doesn't only reserve it for those people lucky enough to be part of those three generations, that we can experience this beautiful peace within, even as there is commotion without. Right. So if we compare it to the bigger dream and the allegories that are found in there, there are many that hold on steadfast, pressing forward to the rod of iron. And we see in this example of the collective salvation what how that happens it's almost meta scriptures on the scriptures and the preservation of truth and how the scriptures are our rod of iron but with the corruption of the scriptures people mm-hmm. don't even know what to grasp onto they can't hold on to the iron rod with both hands with the armor of god because they don't have access to it and how important it is to actually have access to that and so we see through this revelation how important our roles are as we bring the truth to the house of Israel. And so these people that have the restoration of the gospel in its fullness with the apostles and the word of God, it shows you that there are four generations that are able to press forward on that rod of iron. And that's why it's so important that the preservation of truth um, came to pass, which is what happens after this. There's examples of preserving the iron rod and the word of God and how it went across the Americas and how it came from Europe. And and that is the significance to me of why we get this, so that we recognize the importance of preservation of truth and the iron rod. Yes, and how the preservation of truth and being anchored to the Savior and the iron rod, that that creates you know, not only this time of peace, but sort of that wholeness and that completeness and the God is a God of order. And I look here as we're transitioning from chapters 12 to 13 at the very end of chapter 12, it was talking about, you know, the people here of the Lamanites, some Nephites, after they had dwindled in unbelief, they became a dark and loathsome and filthy people. And I thought, isn't that interesting how decay is the opposite of purification? That 
we're on one path or the other depending on what's happening and either things will sort of fall apart or decay or they can become more pure depending on what we're focused on. Absolutely. And I think that goes back to the pure waters versus the filthy waters. We can see that the fountain of righteousness comes from the tree of life, but we can also see that how pure light and things become can become decayed and that as they're purified, we can become closer to Christ, but that that gulf is what separates us from mm. God is another part of the allegory. And so... These are, again, just the flip side of either coming to God or being separated from him because of the choices we make in our um, choice to turn to the Savior and use baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost, and the purification and sanctifying process of the covenants to, to come back into the presence of God. And to have our garments made white through, yes. through his blood. Love that visual. Mm. Okay. So so we do. We get to see how there's the great and abominable church and how because of the praise of the world, they strive to destroy the saints of God and bring them down into captivity. And I would just like to say that I think that the great and abominable church probably had their meetings every week in the great and spacious building. <laughs> <laughs> I, I yes, I think they're I think they're um, comparable mm. in what they do, and mm. so um, the thing that you're commenting on is that we get these two big symbols in many different revelations, but they are one and the same. That they're ultimately we're told in the future of this revelation that there is just there are just two churches, which means there are just two gatherings, which means there's just two congregations. It's either Christ or not Christ. And so when we looked at how, um, I, I even think meta scriptures right now is what I was thinking. Again, the preservation of truth. You look at people criticizing America. You look at people criticizing Columbus. You look at people criticizing our founder founding fathers today, and you can see how Satan loves to distort truth. Whatever, wherever you fall on the spectrum of politics, it's fine. But what I appreciated about reading this is remembering that God is in charge. God has a plan. And he did use righteous people to make sure that his truth came forth. He shows the hands of God in our nation's beginnings. He shows the hand of God in Columbus's trip. He shows the hand of God in preserving the spirit of truth with our founding fathers and making an opportunity so that we had freedom in America so that the Book of Mormon could come forth and restore the church here on the earth. And that's all God's plan. Which is not to say that any of these people were perfect or without right. fault or weakness. I mean, I think that that's a given for every human that has lived on the earth aside from our Savior, Jesus Christ. Each of these people, and I think that's kind of like the beautiful part of it, is that even in their weakness or their limited capacity to um, fully live in truth, they still aligned themselves enough to be led and directed by God, and God was able to use them to bring forth his purposes. And I think that that gives us in our day every hope and encouragement to step into what we can be for the Lord, even if we don't feel like we are perfect or we are um, sort of worthy of that type of assignment, because who are we to want that or to participate in that the reality is that the Lord can use all of us even in our weakness and imperfection to bring about his work. Right. And he does point out that it was 
as they were keeping the commandments that the Lord blessed them. But we all have the opportunity to step into our work, which is part of why I think this is unfolding for us, is to show us that we are part of the house of Israel and we can be partnered with Christ's work as we participate in the collective salvation of the kingdom of God. So when I really enjoyed looking at how it was described that that there really were plain and precious truths purposely removed for the large and spacious building and the building up of um of right it is it is definitely part of satan's plan that yet another way this is just like something that always stands out to me a pattern that i specifically find is a lot of confusion well and i i really enjoyed reading just verse 23 that said that um it told us what we have actually that they did not have and brought forth. So in verse 23, it says, A record like unto the gravings which are upon the plates of brass, save there are not so many. So it's saying to Nephi that their plates of brass had a more comprehensive, um, was more comprehensive than our Bible. Um, they, but they contained the covenants of the Lord, which he made with the house of Israel. So they were of great, of great worth. So preserving the Bible was important, but many Parts which are plain and most precious, and many covenants. So yes. the question of baptism, the question of confirmation, the question of communion, the question of the sacrament, that they were literally perverted um, so that they the people would have blind eyes and hardened hearts. And which, there you go. Which is part of what takes away the power, right? If Absolutely. We don't, like, like our covenants endow us or enable us to have this power to act in the in, in in God's name and with that taken away it is limiting our ability to draw on that power of God. And that's why through the process of God's plan he brought forth the Book of Mormon and he states that he allowed the Book of Mormon to come forth that the standards works came forth that with this that we had the restoration of plain and precious truths. And I love, you know, we we talk about these two kind of opposites again. We have in verse 27 of chapter 13 um, that they've taken away these plain and precious things to pervert the ways of the Lord that they might blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men. So we have this on one side, this this great work of the devil, really. And then as we continue along, the Lamb of God tells us in verse 34... Is starts speaking about how in in his great love and mercy that the restoration is going to come. And I love this idea. He says, I will bring forth unto them in mine own power much of my gospel, which shall be plain and precious. So despite these, this kind of agenda, this working of the devil, which really has wreaked a lot of havoc across the world, that... The Savior has a plan. He's bringing this to us. And I love this concept of the ongoing restoration, I think, is something that my testimony is getting more and more strengthened in, that when we speak of the restoration, it's not simply, although it definitely includes a restoration of priesthood power and of ordinances and apostles and prophets and these key um, guideposts, these key sort of like iron rods for us in our life, but so many other things that we've talked about in this, such as understanding 
the love of God, the security, our access to him and that divine learning. So I am really loving that these plain and precious things are being brought back to us. Well, my thoughts keep turning to, to, okay, this is a very big, big picture thought. So you may have to help me with this, but are you familiar with chiastic writing or chiasms in the scriptures? Okay, I've heard of it, but I'm not. Please explain okay, a little so more I'm not to like, refresh my memory. You know, I didn't write anything down or anything, but literally a chiasm is is literary writing for the scriptures. And so you will have the first shall be last, the last shall be first is like a, the most simple example that comes to mind. So you'll have A, B, B, A. The last shall be first, A, B. The first shall be last, B, A. But you can do this with entire chapters. People will often find chiastic writing in the scriptures. The reason why it's interesting is you do A, B, C, C, B, A, and whatever comes in the middle will always be the most important point that is being made in the scriptures. Now with that two-part point, I'm not illustrating it well, but say for instance, um, okay, I'm not going to pretend that I have memorized chiasm. So chiastic writing. But the point is, is that this chiastic writing that's used in sacred literature, I see in the parable of the tree of life, I see it in the chapters of, of First Nephi, we keep talking about how sin separates us from God and we come back into the presence of God, that our eyes are blinded, but there is a restoration and so I just want to point out chiastic writing so that as you think of these things and you think about how in the beginning, literally Adam and Eve were with God and the tree of eternal life, that there was a, they were out in the wilderness, that there is a path back that literally is the restoration back into the presence of God. And that everything we see here is going, is showing you that once you become separated from God, he provided us a savior. That is the central theme of the chiastic writings. No matter what, there is a savior. That savior is the central key. And he will always put us back on the path and he will always bring us back into the presence of God. And so as we see this, as we see the separation from God and plain and precious truths being restored, the actual restoration to me is chiastic. Oh, yes. If and you look at the Abrahamic covenant and all of it, it all points back from a path that we were separated from. So as you were sharing sort of that underlying theory, I kept seeing like a circle, like um, the work of the Lord is, a, is one, one eternal, eternal round. round. Mm-hmm. And as I was thinking about that, I thought about how our own lives also can follow this pattern where I think a lot of times we feel... Um, there's a lot of uncertainty and confusion where we know that we're at point A, we'd like to be at point B, and it sure doesn't seem like we're taking a straight line there, but that that is by divine design. There are things that we need to learn and accomplish, and that was just part of what came to me during that because there is a purpose in the journey. Otherwise, why would there be a middle? Why would that need to be there? Because the middle is the part where we are able to put it into action. We're able to take these concepts and these um, teachings and these truths that the Lord unfolds to us, and we are able to put it to work. We're able to 
to test it out, to experiment with it, to incorporate in our lives. And maybe it didn't quite work that way. So we tried a different way and then it's messy, right? We've got this messy middle going on, but what is the purpose of that middle in part? I think that it is because we are able then at the end to understand, comprehend, and live in those truths in a way that is completely different than before we have the middle. I love that because all of a sudden you're giving purpose to the separation. Clearly, in the beginning, we were separated from God because we thought we could choose better between good and evil. We That pride of our own agency being the one that chooses it is something that we experience. When we experience that, we get to choose the Savior. And don't we have so many more tools on the path back? Once we became separated and we recognized, you know what? This doesn't work for me. I will choose the Savior. And that is a choice I make with my agency. And I will embrace baptism. And I will embrace the fact that I'm identified as a child of God and, and that I covenant to do the things that... I covenanted a baptism and to actually choose that path and want to stay on the straight and narrow path and want to use those covenants, that trip back and coming and recognizing that the Savior is the way, that he is the path and being and adhering to it steadfastly and holding on with both hands and being clothed with the armor of God and being restored and having a restoration stronger than anything you even could imagine will bring you joy on that path back to the tree of life. And so that's what we want to do with restoring Israel by bringing the truth and the Book of Mormon to the whole house of Israel. And and I think it's important to remember because I like there's so much power and truth in everything that you just shared, but I think it makes it I think it's important to remember that part of embracing the rod of iron and moving toward the tree of life in this lifetime is a vulnerability that we have to be willing to trip and fall to make mistakes because the path is winding and it's thorny and living here mortality is it's a messy place and so I think sometimes part of what holds us back from really leaning in and asking the Lord what we desire and learning from him, seeking our own revelation is that we worry about messing it up. We worry about asking wrong. We worry about like that, that our implementation of how we're going to try to make this work isn't going to look how it's supposed to look. And so being willing to be vulnerable and to live in that messy, I think, is part of the experience. Well, and there's nothing that ever said that making mistakes is not part of the path. We cannot rely on the Savior unless we make mistakes. Tripping and falling and making mistakes is the only way we can depend on the Savior, and it has nothing to do with doing it perfectly. It has everything to do with turning towards the Savior and relying on the Savior, and that only happens through not knowing what to do. Right? Because I think that we say that. We say, well, of course, we're here. We're going to make mistakes. Nobody's going to not make mistakes. But inside of all of us, there's a part of us that would like to say, okay, but I actually don't want to make mistakes. I, I want to make the fewest mistakes possible and do as much as I can on my own because, yeah, yeah, I know that we're here and we're going to make mistakes and that's part of the deal. But I'd like to have to do that as little as possible. When the reality is, 
I don't think that that's actually the objective is to use the atonement as little as possible. Well, I'm glad that you're pointing that out because that may be one of the big keys to why this ending may come off as something that seems a little intimidating because he literally states there's only two churches. And those two churches are those that choose the Savior or do not choose the Savior. That those that do not choose the Savior will be blind in their minds. And it's not that they may be out there doing horrendous activities. It's literally that they're blind in their minds. They do not see that the Savior is the only way. And so if you're still relying on your own strength and your own personal effort and your own wisdom and your own um, pride to do these things, there are only two gatherings. There are those that assemble and congregate and gather in the name of Christ. And there are those that choose a different path. And in chapter 14, verse 14, one of the things I love is we talked in the New Testament, particularly in the epistles, so much about the armor of God and what that will bring for us. I loved this um, teaching about, once again, we are armed with power, that when we turn to the Savior and we want to be on that path headed toward the tree of life, that... He says in verse 14, I, Nephi, beheld the power of the Lamb of God, that it descended upon the saints of the church of the Lamb. And later on in the verse, they were armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. And I love that imagery. I love that promise and the security that comes from knowing Although we are putting ourselves in a vulnerable place to trust in the Savior, there is a great protection and power that comes to us as we venture forth on this great experiment of mortality. I would say there's a much better armor and power that comes with relying on Christ than on yourself. And that is the promise made in the title of our Come Follow Me manual today. The covenants of the atonement strengthen and protect us, and and I'm going to have to um, change the image of the spider monkey on the iron rod to just this, these people that are holding on with both hands, with the full armor of God, pressing forward. And I thought, what a great contrast that is, because there's so much of a foundation. There's so much of a sense of rootedness. There's the sense of rootedness with the weight of the armor. There's a sense of rootedness with being holding on to the iron rod. There's a sense of rootedness with being on the covenant path with the tree and the roots, as opposed to the great and abominable church, which which right after that, the contrast is, it came to pass that I beheld that the wrath of God was poured out upon the great and abominable church. And immediately my thoughts went to the book of Revelation. When we look at the destruction of the harlot in the book of Revelation, where Babylon just turns on her and destroys her in a very graphic way. And I just thought, those without a foundation, when you are separated, when you are alone, when you are uh, relying on yourself, and that pride is what's important, the competition is what's important, that has no foundation because what is the foundation when it's a singular aloneness? There is no foundation there. You will all They all turn on each other. And, and it's not that we need powers of billions of people to fight against them. The church, of, the abominable church destroys itself. And um, we see that when they... It says, so I have two thoughts, but one of them, as you just said, that last thought, it came to me, verse three of the same chapter, 
Um, he says, Yea, that great pit which hath been digged for the destruction of men shall be filled by those who digged it unto their utter destruction. <laughs> and I really enjoyed that. So I think that's kind of what we're talking about here. The, the, it's funny that the graphicness of the destruction of the harlot in the book of Revelation still just comes to mind. I right. remember reading it thinking, oh, that's just that uncomfortable sound, to yeah. even think about. So. Um, and I loved this imagery as you were talking about holding on with both hands and the focus that we need. It brought me to some points in my life and some of my experiences with the iron rod because I think that there are different, that there are moments in our life, you know, I think by and large... In our life, we are securing ourselves to the iron rod and we are pressing forward. Sometimes there's mists of darkness, sometimes there's not, but we are just pressing forward. But I wanted to bring to the forefront this idea that there are moments in mortality where, like you said, everything is coming to bear at once. Maybe, I mean, sometimes does it not feel like all the forces of hell are combined against you in that one moment? And we may not be pressing forward in that moment, because maybe all that we can do is kneel on the path and wrap our arms around that rod and just not get lost. And I think that that is also forward progress, even if we haven't literally moved anywhere. And I and I can vividly picture times in my life when it feels like all else gets stripped away and it's me and the Savior. And as long as I keep my connection with him then I'm okay and I can come out of that again and continue on my pressing forward. I love that visual of kneeling but hanging on to the iron rod because I think that's a very realistic way to look at it. But that brings us to kind of the end of his vision, which we know is then explained in more detail in, in at the end of the New Testament if you want to go there. But I really did appreciate that we had that great example of Nephi looking towards Christ for answers about his father's vision and the difference between his approach and Laman and Lemuel's. It was just such a strong contrast. Um, he said that after his vision, he beheld his brothers were disputing one with another concerning the things which their father spoke of. They were said they were hard to be understood, save a man should acquire of the Lord. Um, and they being hard in their hearts, therefore they did not look unto the Lord as they ought um, I just love the, this like series of questions. Cause I feel like this could easily be like a conversation that I could have with one of my kids or something like Nephi says, well, have you inquired of the Lord? Like, well, did you ask? Cause they're like, I don't know. We don't understand it. This is way too confusing and hard. I don't under, I don't get it. And Nephi's like, well, have you asked? And they were like, no, we have not for the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us. Not that we asked him, but he didn't just answer us even though we didn't ask and didn't desire it. I just think it's such an interesting thing for them to assume that it's not for them when they thought when they gave no thought even even to ask. Like in the Doctrine and Covenants, you know, there's some chastisement like all you did was ask, you didn't do anything else. And here it's not even asking. You're not even asking for what you want. And we're told consistently in the scriptures to ponder, to seek, to know those truths. But in their defense, I, I can see how in modern day times we can hear these things and then think, well, that's not for me. So we have here a prophet that revealed something. In their time, they were, may have been used to the priest, the high priest going into the temple and coming out and telling everybody what to do to repent. 
we may look at our prophet and hear him tell us words and say, okay, thanks, I'll do that, the end. But the prophet is telling us over and over again to seek, to get personal revelation, to know for ourselves. Yet maybe twice a year we go to, we sit through conference, take notes, and then have our checklist again of what to apply. Because we're used to, I've got my 60-hour work week, I'm doing that, and when the prophet tells me something else to do, then I'll do whatever's next. But I'm really busy with my worldly concerns right now. And, and so the Lord maketh no such thing known unto me. It's not like I was in conference and an angel came to me and said, you know, this statement right here, you need to ponder more and you need to seek more. And so I think it's common for people's lifestyles to say, I'm a really busy person. And when the prophet makes something known to me, I'll make that a priority. Well, the prophets told us over and over to make all of this a priority. The question is, are we in the habit of pondering and seeking and asking for personal revelation? You know, I am really glad that you brought that up because as you're talking, I think, oh, okay, I probably fit in the Lehman and Lemuel category far more regularly than I fit in the other category. And I would say that that is shifting as growth always is, that the pendulum, you know, that sort of that balance of the percentage is shifting the other direction. And I do embrace and enjoy the process of knowing for myself, but I think it is completely familiar to me to have this thought of I'll follow whatever is being taught because I believe it and I trust it and the end. And I don't think about it more than that. I just hear and do. And I think that that is amazing. But like, I think that there's a lot of good in that is what I'm saying. I think the main thing is that we're living below our privilege at that point. Absolutely. We've got the opportunity to know and understand on a much more significant level and therefore step into so much more power. And I have to say, I think President Nelson is making it very clear that he wants us to do that more and more. And consequently, I I can see how how you're seeing it manifest more and more too. And in case we don't know, again, how to do that, we are told this pattern once again in verse 10. First, broken heart, contrite spirit, soft hearts, ask in faith, believing that ye shall receive with diligence and keeping my commandments. So do all these things and ask. Ask in faith. And as we ask in faith, we will be able to know the gospel of Christ deeper and on a deeper level. There's nothing about the gospel of Jesus Christ that is simply passive. We always have the opportunity to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ more and more. And to know for ourselves so that we can fully use our agency. The more that we seek to know and understand then our choices become more significant and more empowered. And we are truly stepping into our divinity as sons and daughters of God when we are using our agency in such a powerful way. Well, and he even says in verse 24 of chapter 15, in verse 24 it says, Whoso would hearken unto the word of God and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish. Neither could the temptations of the fiery darts of the adversary overpower them unto blindness to lead them away to destruction. If you don't have the desire to know more, then reading this vision in and of itself should let you know that if you are passively on the covenant path, the fiery darts of the adversary will overpower you unto blindness. This is not a passive participation, right? And so when we talk about, I, I think one of my more proud moments as a mother was when I went over this lesson this past week, and we were talking about what is the word of God? And 
uh, we said it's the scriptures, we said it's the word of the prophets, and then my 16-year-old said, and personal revelation. And I was like, oh my goodness, (laughs) this is so exciting because if you're on the path and you want to hold on steadfastly with both hands with the armor of God, that is all of it. That is the temple. That is the words of the prophet. That is personal revelation. That is the Book of Mormon. That is everything we've been giving and seeking for truth, seeking for answers. And and I think you were making this reference when we read in Ephesians about putting on the full um, armor of God. And it was funny last week, you're like, if I were Satan, you could like have this barrage of weaponry or something. And he does. He throws fiery darts. So even if you're in the, even if you're holding on with both hands and you aren't letting go to be um, distracted by the mist of darkness, he's those still sending people, arrows at you. Those people that have both hands on, those are the ones he's he is putting those fiery darts towards. So put on the full armor of God, people. And I will say those that are holding on strong, he he probably is zoning on more. So yes, put on the full armor of God. To protect yourself there. I love and I I don't know if you have I was I, my mind is drawn down to verse 32, but do you have something you want to connect with before that? No, but we're, yeah. So, well, um, I do like this huge gulf, this awful gulf yeah. that really separates us, that, that it's very clear that the filthy waters can drown us. There is filth that once you get in, that is real jeopardy. That's what it feels like. Don't, don't mess with the gulf of filthiness. There's like a peril, like a right. real peril to our temporal and spiritual lives. Oh, when, Yeah. One of the things that I loved, this is actually in verse 33 of chapter 15, so we're nearing the end here. Um, I thought it was interesting because after all of this, Nephi, you know, is sharing what he's been taught and to been taught by the angel and by the spirit through, through revelation and I'm sure his studying of the plates of brass, that, that, it, that people will be brought to stand before God to be judged of their works. And as I was looking at that, and there's more that we're that we're that we can cover there, but the this little pattern came like kind of unfolded to me. Why works? Why are we judged based on our works? Because, you know, we talk about how we're saved by grace, but we're judged by works. I I was thinking that's really interesting, but I thought going back to that concept that we were talking to in the middle. So maybe this is a little chiasma of sorts. Did I say that right? I think it's chiastic and chiasmic, so I don't know. Chiasmic, okay, I like that. Um, Chiastic? Because we talked kind of in the middle about agency, but we started this whole thing talking about our desires and what do we desire, what do we want. And I feel like our works are a representation of how we use our agency. And that if, if we've learned, like, as we look at the really grand picture of our time here before we came to earth, how we use our agency matters. And... That comes right back to what is the desire of our heart? What are we seeking? What are we desiring? Because from that will flow how we use our agency, which I think is essentially what our works are. Oh, and I love that. I love the concept, too, of agency being a pure flow of water throughout our lives. But mm. we don't really have time to to diverge too much. So I'm just going to say this. Choosing personal revelation will always come with works, right? But the point you were just making came right after Laman and Lemuel go Nephi. What is the, is, are you, when you say this, are you talking like temporally we have to do this? Are you talking spiritually do we have to do this? Please write it out for me. Please give me my checklist again. No. There are two churches 
And that, when you have somebody else telling you what to do, choosing your agency, using your checklist, you have not yet tapped into the fact that you are dependent on the Savior, that this covenant path gets you to the Savior so that you can turn to the Savior in prayer, receive personal revelation, and your works will reflect your agency, which is to choose the covenant path, that it is all temporal. And it is all spiritual. Anything that is not all Jesus Christ is not of his church. There are two. And so that is why Laman and Lemuel are really still suffering at the end of this because they are still leaning on Nephi to give them answers. Nephi is not their advocate with the Father. The Savior is our advocate, and he will show us temporal, spiritual, emotional, all the things we need to do to return. To, to hold fast to that iron rod and return back to our Father in Heaven. And I wonder if part of this question comes back to where is your heart and where do you lean for your security? If you're saying it's one or the other, I wonder if that is um, part of the question. Is again coming back to our desire, but you know, we looked way back at the beginning when we're talking about the great and spacious building versus the tree of life, where are we finding our security? Where are we leaning with those things that are most precious to us? Right, and he ends with saying that the righteous are willing to hearken to the truth and that the wicked find the truth to be hard. And if you don't want to know the truth, don't ask Heavenly Father because he's going to let you know and then you're going to have to actually act on it and your works will reflect that. But he is giving us the way back and that is through the truth of his word. And I am so thankful this week to see like in action, this beautiful example of Nephi desiring to learn, desiring to understand and the, the amazing knowledge and understanding and revelation that flowed from that, that now we hundreds of years later are benefiting from. I love that. And I give praise and glory to God. Amen. Thanks, Laura. We'll talk to you next week.